This is Financial Standard, the definitive source of news, thought leadership and analysis for Australian wealth management professionals. Financial Standard. Take the lead. Hi, I'm Chloe Walker and welcome to the Financial Standard podcast. Right now, the world's second largest economy, China, is struggling with deflation. Its economic growth slowed to 0.8% in the June quarter, and some expect long-term annual growth of about 4% in the economy, down from about 8 to 10%. While many experts believe this data raises concern, others stay hopeful that China's growth story remains intact. Today, I'm joined by an expert who thinks the latter, Fidelity International Investment Director Catherine Young, to find out more. Welcome, Catherine. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Chloe. Great to be on. Yeah, great to have you. Um, So to start off, could you please give us a breakdown in terms of what the Chinese stock market is experiencing right now? Um, What are we seeing? Well, a bit of dismay, I think, (laughs) and um, sort of a bit of hopes being given up. Yeah. Maybe also foreign investors in particular have put China in the too hard basket. So if we look back to last year and following the big Congress meeting, sentiment was probably at one of its all-time lows that I've ever seen. And then when you saw Xi Jinping announce um, that lockdowns would no longer be in place, so a complete 180-degree term, you saw this sense of euphoria come back with investors and the market had a very strong rally, although it felt quite momentum-driven. So, you know, naturally, a lot of the beneficiaries of reopening really rallied strongly. And then come February this year, um, more negative sentiment set in. So the recovery that was expected started to dissipate. And, you know, you started seeing this weak economic data come through. There's a big loss of confidence, even with domestic Chinese residents or Chinese investors. And, you know, essentially we're in the situation now where China is probably one of the most unfavored major markets in the world. <laughs> Even when you look at valuations, I mean, it's it's just staggering that, you know, this was a few weeks ago, I was looking at this, but Chinese price earnings, they're over the 20-year period or the past 20 years trading at the, their biggest discount to Asian valuations. And then if you look at Asian valuations over the same time period, they're trading at their largest discount to US equities. So essentially, if China can deliver on the reforms, and, and reforms is really, really key, but it's a different type of policy response this time around, then essentially the construct for good returns is very high on a top-down basis. Bottom-up, it's very different though, Chloe. In fact, a lot of companies are doing quite well. Okay. Wow. That's that's quite interesting. Um, now, Australia has been one of the big long-term winners from China's growth in recent decades. How will mm. our economy and share market fare if China's economy does crash? So this is the problem, I think, with China, or one of China's both short-term and long-term issues, and that's mm-hmm. regarding the property market. And yeah. you know, it's interesting because even the biggest bears on China have always said that the infrastructure cycle in China or what China was doing in terms of developing property at such a rapid pace to obviously provide houses as we see this you know, change in urbanization, that it was unsustainable. Mm. And in fact, it is unsustainable. So what you've seen now is that the authorities in Beijing have really looked at property and said it can't continue to be sort of tracking the way it's tracked. A lot of the private developers, by the way, historically with cyclical recoveries that begin their projects very aggressively using the funding from the pre-sales because most people in China tend to buy their properties off market or off plan. 
And then a lot of these projects actually haven't been completed. So China's property situation isn't so much like in Australia where you'd see a cut in interest rates that tends to support the property market. In China, it's it's a loss of confidence that you don't actually receive the property that you've paid for. Yeah, so wow. change in, in the property market in, in terms of the state-owned enterprises are really now taking on these projects. And because they're state-owned, they behave very differently to the private enterprises or the private developers. So what does this mean for Australia? In fact, what does it mean for the world? I think we have to reset expectations when it comes to China, that the policy response this time around is not like we previously saw. So Australia really benefited from the super cycle we saw many, many years ago from a commodity perspective. And essentially, those commodities aren't as needed anymore because we've got this change in the property cycle and infrastructure in general. So, you know, it's going to have an impact likely on Australian commodity exporters. But then the plus for Australia is that the quality of Australian resources is so, so high. Plus, you know, even if we were to see a dip in various commodity prices, because Australia is a low cost producer, Australia still sort of has a very good position in the marketplace. But I think if you're an Australian resources company, you'd have to factor in this slowdown. Maybe you could see um, you know, a bit of a makeup in, in other markets across Asia or economies who are building up their infrastructure. Um, but again, you know, China is just not going to grow at the same kind of pace you alluded to or, or referred to the growth rates earlier. It's just not going to grow at those kind of rates anymore but because it doesn't actually need to because we're a different part of the cycle. Of course, Australian consumer-related goods, that's still a huge opportunity because the consumption story, despite consumers feeling you know, a little bit uneasy to spend, and don't forget Australian households versus Chinese households, it's a very different scenario. Yeah. So Chinese households are very rich in terms of their savings. That's about 35 37% savings rate in the households. And they don't have the kind of debt that Australian households or let's say Korean households or uh, American households have. So again, it goes back to that confidence that needs to re-emerge with the consumer. But Australian brands, I mean, whether they're dairy companies or beverage companies like wine companies, sports companies, they could do really, really well in China. Great. Um, that's really interesting what you said about resetting our expectations. Um, I like that. So off the back of that, why is Fidelity optimistic for investors in China? And how is that playing into your allocations or weightings towards the country? So we're sort of at the peak of the earnings season in China. In fact, I'm going back in there next week to Hangzhou and Shanghai to see companies <laughs> with the team. Um, Hangzhou, you know, that's where Alibaba is, has yep. their headquarters. We're seeing a variety of companies, but essentially they tend to be the focus, or we're focusing on very innovative, high quality companies uh, versus, let's say, state owned enterprises. And as state owned enterprises, the management teams have been told to behave more in line with private enterprises in terms of rewarding minority shareholders, distributing income. So think of almost the state owned enterprises as the aim is to behave more like, let's say, you know, blue chip Australian companies where you have that very attractive dividend yield coming through because it's important for the households because capital markets will eventually be an important source in terms of or destination for asset allocation for households in China because you're seeing property no longer being the backbone of the economy. Mm. So in terms of China, from a company perspective, 
owning companies that have that margin of safety. So despite all the ups and downs we're seeing in terms of economic data, who has the strong business models, who can grow their earnings. You know, many companies now, especially these platform consumer-related companies, are looking offshore. So there's a company called um, Pingdadao, PDD, which historically used to focus on the rural consumer market. And they're now going offshore with their, with their platform, Timo. So it's like a heavily discounted platform. Yes, I, don't I know. know. It's in Australia. <laughs> it is, is in Australia. yeah. Uh, it's gaining a lot of traction. Um, I mean, it's it's loss making at the moment, but it's it's gaining traction. What we are seeing, though, you know, with Chinese consumers, they want value for money at this point in time. Of course, it's a variety of companies. You know, again, I wouldn't rule out these state-owned enterprises. I mentioned the property SOEs. You know, these companies and and their management teams they pay dividend yields on par with what Australian companies pay. And their land bank is but well diversified. You know, they're backed by the state essentially. So it's important to have a mixture of companies. And I, I do think, as you see, there's something like over 3,000 listed companies in mainland China. So that's Shenzhen and, and Shanghai Stock Exchanges and more IPOs in the pipeline. So having that sort of specialization in terms of identifying those opportunities. So I don't think, remember how, you know, a few years ago, you could just own, let's say, five Chinese names, usually consumer-related and you'd get you know very very attractive returns delivered to you, and they were well owned by foreigners and domestic investors. I don't think China's going to be as easy to navigate. I mean, as long as you understand policy direction, you understand the companies. But I think either you know having a different star bias, like maybe being value contrarian, maybe having a tilt towards smaller companies, being able to tap into maybe the unlisted space. I think that is going to be the really interesting area of China across all industries, by the way, not just focusing on your traditional consumer space, which tended to make people a lot of money. Mm. Um, and I suppose you've already touched on this, but where do you think the most lucrative opportunities are in China at the moment? Where's the growth going to come from? You know, again, I think it's going to be all different kinds of um, areas. Yeah. You know, even just the other day, I was talking to one of our fund managers who, you know, had a meeting with a forklifting company. And it sounds quite boring, right? <laughs> this forklifting company is making massive inroads in terms of, uh, you know, offshore sales and offshore projects. Okay. In conjunction with, I guess, a lot of the, the Belt Road initiatives. So that's China's big policy in terms of, you know, infrastructure development across Asia, mm. up into Europe, even to Australia, right? You, you often hear about some projects which are related to Belt Road or it used to be One Belt, One Road. Then obviously the consumer is important. A lot of companies are, are increasing their their market share and taking market share away from you know foreign brands. And that's why I mentioned the Australian brands. But like let's say Australian wine has such a a, a well regarded brand, or it's an aspirational purchase, and and no Chinese wine company could compete in that space. But there are other spaces where you're seeing like whether it's jewelry market, jewelry shops, sorry, or you know, let's say uh, clothing, not high-end clothing, that the Chinese brands are, are really gaining a lot of traction. So, you know, I know that everyone is very bearish <laughs> on China. It's very unfavorable to be even remotely bullish on China. But, you know, again, ju there's just so much negative news that has been factored in. And I think when it comes to Chinese policies, 
the more they focus on the problems, the more likely they are to rectify it. And this property bubble, it just couldn't go on. So you're probably going to see some relaxation in the top tier cities. So cities like Shanghai in terms of home purchasing, because historically or over the past several years, the government's been saying homes is where you live. It's not for investment purposes to ensure that everyone in China has access to property, healthcare, as well as um, education under their common prosperity policy. Um, you you do have this overabundance of supply in certain cities there, right? Those ghost cities that you often hear of or you see pictures of. And that oversupply is going to take years to sort of um, be resolved. So we do have to be mindful of that. We have to be mindful of the demographic situation. But again, all the problems are there. Uh, it's 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 being addressed the best they can. Whereas I think in other major economies, the risk is that policymakers could be behind the curve, that markets aren't factoring in potential risks, whereas I think we're over-factoring in the <laughs> risks in China. I think you're you're probably right in that regard. Um, I hope so, Chloe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With all the doom and gloom news out there on China, it's really fascinating to hear a different opinion, and I always like one that's got flares of optimism. Thank you so much for sharing your insights, um, and it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast, Catherine. Thanks so much, Chloe. Great talking to you. You too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Financial Standard podcast. For more information, visit financialstandard.com.au. Please keep in mind that the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature and does not consider personal circumstances. Reliance should not be placed on any content without further independent financial research and advice. 